Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to the iFormerX podcast, where we explore the evidence that informs ambulatory care pharmacy practice. I'm Stuart Haynes, and I'm the host of the iFormerX podcast, and I'm so pleased that you're taking time out of your busy schedule to listen and learn. Our mission at iFormerX is to create an online space where people engage in ongoing professional development so they can provide the best care to their patients. So I want to thank you for being a member of our community. In in today's episode, we're not going to talk about drug therapy. And while I believe medications are important and sometimes miraculous, Many of the chronic diseases that we see in our practices today are closely related to our, quote, modern lifestyle. And I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that healthy lifestyle behaviors are the very cornerstone of good health. About 20 years ago, the Diabetes Prevention Project provided us with some pretty compelling data about the importance of physical activity and and adopting a healthy diet in terms of preventing diabetes and addressing cardiovascular risk. Indeed, there have been a number of studies that have repeatedly shown that regular physical activity and dietary modifications that lead to modest weight loss can positively impact our quality of life, improve glycemia, reduce blood pressure, and has positive effects on our mental health. And yet, and yet, most of us don't spend enough time talking about how to adopt lifestyle behaviors. As pharmacists, we might think it's someone else's job, but as I always tell my patients with diabetes, you can always eat your way through any medication that might be prescribed. And no medication is going to make you physically fit. But I also know it's hard to adopt lifestyle behavior changes because so much of our environment is structured in a way to encourage us to eat too much, sleep too little, and not get enough physical activity. But a recently published report in JAMA Internal Medicine about the benefits of cycling got me thinking about physical activity that could be part of our daily lives that also serve another purpose, in this case, a form of transportation. And here to tell us all about the study and its implications in practice are Dr. Kristen Lutek, one of the authors of the commentary, and Dr. Sina Haynes, one of the peer reviewers of the commentary. Dr. Lutek is clinical pharmacy specialist and a diabetes educator at Methodist Hospital in Dallas, Texas. And Dr. Haynes is professor of pharmacy practice at the University of Mississippi and a certified health and wellness coach. Kristen, it's great to have you here as a first-time contributor. And Sina, welcome back. Thank you so much, Stuart. Glad to be here. It's great to be back with the iForumRx community. Hello, friends. So, Sina, I'd like to start with you uh, before we talk about the study that Dr. Lutek and Dr. Hewitt reviewed in their commentary. I'm wondering if you can give us a broad overview of the benefits of regular physical activity, how much physical activity is needed to gain these benefits, and whether these benefits are independent of diet and weight loss. The benefits of physical activity, I think, are certainly well outlined in the Physical Activity Guidelines for Americans, which is published by the Department of Health and Human Services. And the CDC and and the American College of Sports Medicine Guidelines are other great resources for this information. 
Physical activity is an important lifestyle behavior that can help prevent weight gain and contribute to the prevention of obesity in adults. There are several health benefits of physical activity across the entire age span, regardless of the impact on weight gain prevention or body weight status. In fact, the American College of Sports Medicine highlights the importance of physical activity across numerous health-related parameters, such as improving our energy and decreasing our fatigue, promoting better sleep quality. It helps fight depression, anxiety, reducing our stress levels, increases muscle strength and endurance, improving our cognitive function, and reducing our risk for chronic disease and other adverse health outcomes like our blood pressure regulation, cardiovascular disease and stroke, diabetes, you've mentioned already osteoporosis, and even lowering risk of certain cancers associated with sedentary behavior like breast cancer or colon cancer. The American College of Sports Medicine recommends all healthy adults age 18 to 65 to either have 150 minutes each week of moderate intensity aerobic physical activity. This is, you know, playing tennis or brisk walking can certainly fulfill that. Or you can opt to do 75 minutes each week of vigorous intensity of aerobic physical activity. And this might mean for some jogging or swimming laps. But you can think of this as moving our bodies 30 minutes a day, and every adult should also perform activities that maintain or increase our muscle strength and endurance a minimum of two days each week. Because of the dose-response relation between physical activity and health, people who wish to further improve their personal fitness, reduce the risk for chronic disease, disability, or prevent an unhealthy weight gain can benefit by even exceeding the minimum recommended amounts of physical activity. Final thing I'd say here is the only discretionary component of daily energy expenditure is physical activity and the replacement of a sedentary routine by various kinds of activity is a common approach to increasing our energy expenditure, which is a very good thing indeed. So, Kristen, let's talk about the study that you and Cheng Yuet uh, reviewed in your commentary. The study is entitled Association of Cycling with All-Cause and Cardiovascular Disease Mortality Among Persons with Diabetes, the European Prospective Investigation into Cancer and Nutrition, or EPIC, study. And, the, and this paper appeared in the September 2021 issue of JAMA Internal Medicine. So we provide a link to that paper on the iFormerX website, but can you give us a brief summary of the study methods and its key findings? So this was a prospective cohort study that included more than 7,000 adults with diabetes from the EPIC trial. Questionnaires regarding medical history, sociodemographic, and lifestyle information were administered in 10 Western European countries from 1992 through 2000, um, and then there was a second examination five years after the baseline. The primary exposure was self-reported time spent cycling per week at the baseline examination, and then the secondary exposure was change in cycling status from baseline to the second examination. So this study evaluated the association of self-reported time spent cycling on all-cause and cardiovascular mortality in adult patients with diabetes. 
The 7,000 patients included in the analysis were primarily female, never smokers, largely non-cyclists with a mean age of about 56 years, BMI of 29, and central obesity. The study patients were followed for a mean of about 15 years, resulting in about 110,000 person years of data. So as to our results, at baseline, cycling more than zero minutes per week was associated with a lower hazard ratio for all-cause mortality and cardiovascular mortality when compared to non-cyclists. And then hazard ratios for all-cause and cardiovascular mortality were 0.7 or less for patients who started or maintained cycling compared to non-cyclists. So as for our key takeaways, cycling was associated with a lower risk of all-cause and cardiovascular mortality among people with diabetes after considering other physical activities as well as other risk factors. So I know this study is not a randomized controlled trial, but the magnitude of the benefit observed was pretty remarkable. It's about a 30% reduction in all-cause mortality in this study. Admittedly, observational studies are prone to confounders, so we need to be careful not to draw firm conclusions from this study. But these data clearly confirm what has been observed in other studies. And I'm, I'm wondering what you think are the key strengths and weaknesses of this report. So I think it is important to note, first of all, that this is a novel study in terms of its focus on a population of patients with type 2 diabetes. Women were also represented well in this study, which makes it unique. This was a multi-center prospective cohort study that did include adjustment for patient-specific factors at baseline. In addition, dietary assessment tools were previously validated among the source populations of the EPIC trial. There are several limitations I would mention. Uh, due to the observational design of this trial, we would not be able to determine a causal relationship between cycling and cardiovascular disease and all-cause mortality. When identifying patients with diabetes, the study authors did include both self-reported diagnoses and diagnoses by other sources, such as laboratory results. So this may actually have resulted in a misclassification of patients based off of the duration or the type of diabetes. And in turn, this misclassification could impact study outcomes since a longer duration of diabetes is associated with an increased risk for cardiovascular complications. The inclusion of patients with complete data is also a possible source of selection bias and may limit real-world application. Also, although the dietary questionnaires were validated, the use of self-reported dietary logs may have introduced several types of bias, such as recall or social desirability. And lastly, I do want to mention that the combined endpoints used in this trial may be misleading, um, as the effect of the trial may be driven by an individual endpoint. So I think... Kristen covered the strengths and weaknesses very well. I would just add a couple quick highlights. I think there's an influence here of the fact that these are people who are biking to work and likely their level of health versus someone who's maybe more sedentary, who opts not to bike to work. 
is an influence here that we should take note in terms of its extrapolating to other populations. I think the influence of a typical dietary practice of those in European countries differs somewhat from the U.S., so that's probably important to think about as well. So let's talk about some of the practical implications and how to help our patients engage in more physical activity. Cycling, of course, is only but one option, and in some cases can be a great way to get to and from work, but in the United States, where the distances that we tend to live from work, cycling probably isn't a practical transportation option for most patients. Nonetheless, how do we encourage people to become more physically active and make it a regular part of their lives? For someone looking to get started with regular physical fitness, it may be helpful first to get a baseline fitness level assessment so they can assess their health and consult with any provider to determine if any exercises can interfere with a treatment plan or a pre-existing chronic condition. To help our patients explore NEAT, that's N-E-A-T, non-exercise activity thermogenesis. These are the types of activities that we can be doing more of as part of our daily living. Taking stairs, where we park our car, more leisure walking, perhaps with a furry friend, washing our car, landscaping, gardening, and even those pesky chores around the house, everyone. You can try and tailor physical fitness to interest. So consider a fitness personality profile assessment to help identify a form of physical activity that aligns with your level of motivation, socialization, competitiveness, or other characteristics. So this helps touch on two intrinsic motivators, aligning with our competence or skill, and also our autonomy or choice. We should try and make it fun and keep it challenging so it doesn't seem like a workout. And think about connecting with others. So this brings that relatedness and community forward. You may be someone who will be grittier when you show up with other people, which also adds a layer of accountability and camaraderie. And think about supplies and equipment you first need to improve your success. You might need to invest or get advice on proper like shoes, for example. And finally, I have to talk about habit development. So as a coach, I work with clients building on new habits. We use an implementation intention. So when a client, your patient, your colleague, they want to implement a new type of fitness, well, what is the behavior you're wishing to do? What is the time you're going to do it? And in what location? So very specific and aiming to pair or stack this with an existing daily habit you do most days of the week. And finally, I'll say this. We always talk about smart goal development. So using that as a technique to develop, map, track and recalibrate if you need to. And remember, I liked, well, I like to say to folks, add an F for forgiving when things don't go as planned. This allows us to be more self-compassionate. Remember, tomorrow is a new day and habit development takes time. So savor those small wins and small gains. I also encourage my patients to identify activities they naturally enjoy and are drawn towards. So, for example, while one of my patients loves attending soul cycle classes, so another patient who enjoys extended periods of yard work 
Um, I encourage him to do that because it also aids with his sense of mental and emotional well-being um, and accomplishment with beautification of his front yard. So, and then I also encourage patients as well to participate in physical activity with family, friends, or through group activities or sports when possible, because the connections that are created through participation in group exercise can help to strengthen relationships, boost mood, and then increase motivation and consistency. So as far as coaching strategies, I also encourage people to consider setting SMART goals for their physical activity. I think this can help make more manageable or achievable lifestyle changes from appointment to appointment rather than becoming overwhelmed or procrastinating starting a given physical activity. Sometimes I feel that people can view physical activity in kind of a black and white way in terms of believing that only high impact activities such as like running or high impact sports are the best option for achieving their physical activity goals. And since they may have limitations to those types of activities for a variety of reasons, they may defer initiation of exercise altogether. I encourage especially older adults or patients with limitations to mobility to consider that activities such as chair exercises or pool exercises, other low impact activities when performed regularly can provide the same benefits as moderate to high impact activities in sports. Well, Kristen, Cena, thank you so much for being on the iFormerX podcast today and talking with us about the many benefits of physical activity and how to help our patients become more physically active. Do you talk to your patients about physical activity as a routine part of your practice? If so, tell us about your approach to these conversations and the kinds of activities that you recommend and talk about. Remember, only iFormerX members can leave comments and use the interactive features on our website. So if you're not already a member, I encourage you to visit our website at iFormerX.org and sign up today. Membership in iFormerX is free to all health professionals, including students who are enrolled in health professional programs. And just so you know, this program will be available for board recertification credit for board certified ambulatory care pharmacists later this year through the American Pharmacists Association's Ambulatory Care Board Prep and Recertification Program. We've partnered with APHA to produce the Evidence-Based Practice Literature Evaluation Series, which is available online on demand, anytime, anywhere. If you'd like to learn more about the APHA board prep and recertification program, just click on that link that we've posted below the written commentary on our website. And lastly, I'd like to say thank you to Kimberly Zitko from South College School of Pharmacy in Knoxville, Tennessee, who joined the iFormerX advisory board about a year ago. Uh, Dr. Zitko has written commentaries, peer-reviewed commentaries, and encourage your students to sign up. And I've said this many times before, but it's true. We depend on people like Kim to volunteer their time and talent to make this community of practice possible. If you'd like to get more involved, just send me an email. Until next time, this is Stuart Haynes, editor-in-chief of iFormerX, signing off. Be safe, my friends. Mm-hmm.